Nearly 500 people gathered in Oxford this month for the inaugural Festival of Preaching, organised by Canterbury Press and the Church Times. The sell-out event included talks on preaching from Bishop Stephen Cottrell, Sam Wells, Nadia Boltz-Weber and Kate Bruce, to name a few. In this special Church Times podcast extra, we feature Paula Gooder's talk at the festival on nasty surprises in the lectionary. Read more about the Festival of Preaching in this week's Church Times or on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. You can buy a USB stick featuring all 11 talks at festivalofpreaching.hymnsam.co.uk. If you don't already subscribe to the Church Times, check out our introductory offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. And if you've just started ordination training in the UK or the diocese in Europe, you can claim your free, no-strings-attached subscription. We've all been there. You start preparing your sermon probably not quite as early as you had intended to. And you turn to the gospel. You scratch your head and think, maybe the epistle. (laughs) You turn to the epistle. Maybe the Old Testament reading and then the psalm possibly the collect. (laughs) And you end up preaching on the hymn you especially chose for the occasion. (laughs) I can assure you that there is one thing worse than that. And that is, in a a fit of foolishness, agreeing to talk about those passages in a festival of preaching to expert (laughs) preachers. Um, I have spent a long time deeply regretting my foolishness in agreeing to um, talk about those nasty surprises in the lectionary. Um, And my husband, who's here at the festival, I emailed him earlier today and said, Gio, I think I've changed my mind. I'm not going to (laughs) come. But I am here. So let's see what we can do. Nasty surprises in the lectionary cause all our hearts to sink. And if you're hoping that I've brought my magic wand with me, you know, that one that you train into as a biblical scholar, that I can wave um, and solve all potential problems you will ever have on all of those lectionary problems, of course, that is not going to be the case this evening. But actually, what I'm going to do is suggest something probably more troubling than you were expecting when you first came this evening which is that what those nasty surprises do, those passages that make you scratch your head, bang it a few times on the table and give up, what they do to you is offer a gift, a gift for preaching that we need to accept with joy because what they do is that they remind us that the Bible is not all that easy to preach on that the Bible is in fact actually a dangerous and wild text that is very difficult to contain, to communicate, and to make into a happily packaged message that people will all go away feeling cheery at the end of it. Actually, what those nasty surprises do is remind us that all the Bible should be treated as that wild and untamed text. Even those passages that you sigh with relief, you know, you open it and you go, thank goodness, it's the prodigal son. (laughs) Actually, you should then immediately say to yourself, 
heavens, it's the prodigal son. Because as soon as you're reading the Bible, especially I would suggest the parables, as though they are easy and possible to package up in an easy way, then you may just be misunderstanding them. So the nasty surprises are in fact an enormous gift to us and not despair making. And what they do, I think, is summed up beautifully by Walter Brueggemann, um, whose quote is on the handout for you, which will take a little bit of explaining, but it's a really good quote, I promise. Prophetic preaching is dangerous work, not only because it has a subversive edge, but because it requires an epistemological break with the assumed world of dominant imagination. This epistemological, I can't even say it twice. Epistemological break makes us aware of our assumptions we have not recognized or reflected upon. I'm not going to try and say that word again. Epistem- I'm going to, I am. Going to go. Epistemological um, is your system of knowledge, the way in which you understand the world. And the reason why the most powerful preaching is the most powerful preaching is it requires you to see the world in a new way. It requires you to leave behind everything that you knew before and to go on into the future with different vision, different um, eyes for what the world might hold. Those nasty surprises in the lectionary jolt you out of your comfort areas. They jolt you out of knowing what you already know and require you to see the world through a different imagination. And therefore, the nasty surprises in the lectionary are, as I've suggested already, an enormous gift to us because they remind us it's not easy. They remind us that actually it takes everything that we've got. But in order to begin to reflect on preaching on the nasty surprises in the lectionary, I felt the need to try and get in my mind some kind of definition for a sermon. And I do this with trembling, particularly in this particular context. Um, And not least because, do you know, there are things that people say to you and you know they are wrong and yet they inhabit your head and it's very difficult to get them out of your head. So about 15 years ago, I turned up to preach somewhere and um, just before the service, the member of the clergy who had invited me very generously said to me, now, lay people don't know the difference between a sermon and a talk. Just make sure yours is a sermon. And I know he is wrong, but he has me on a rather nice catch-22. Because if I said to him, so what is the difference between a sermon and a talk, I would demonstrate the veracity of the statement he'd just made to me. So therefore, I couldn't inquire what the difference was between a sermon and a talk. But it's kind of taken up residence inside of me. So as soon as I try and define for you a sermon, he comes into my head and says, lay people don't know the difference between a sermon and a talk. Um, So here is this lay person's attempt to define what she thinks a sermon is and not a talk. But I do it with trembling and trepidation, and largely because, in a way, you may well disagree. But as you're disagreeing, think what you think a sermon is instead, and we'll have made a big step forward this evening, which might be a helpful one. But for me, there are three strands in a sermon. 
there's something about proclamation. The proclamation that the good news really is good. That there is something that is life transforming going on and that we have great joy to communicate. There's something about instruction, about teaching, and telling people a way of viewing the world, whether through emotion, whether through the intellect, but they see the world in a different way. We instruct them and teach them and take them to a new place. And there's something about application, that actually there is something in what we are saying that makes a difference. It's the so what question. So therefore, what now will you do? How now will you live? Those three seem to me to be at least a really good start for a sermon. There may have lots of other elements in it as well, but you could start well with those three elements. And the problem with those nasty surprises in the lectionary is that once you've had a really good diet of smiting, it is really hard to think of the good news. It is very hard to proclaim good news out of some passages. Once you've had one of those frankly incomprehensible passages, like, for example, oh, off the top of my head, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 10, that we heard in Evensong this evening, um, where Mark Oakley did a spectacular job of unpacking it. But um, you need to know that um, when I get to do my speciality, I'm a Pauline scholar. When I get to do my speciality in Paul, I'm a 2 Corinthians expert. I haven't the foggiest what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 5. So sometimes, actually, the simple act of instruction is really difficult because you're not really sure what it means either. And then that application, when you've got a gory, very difficult passage, um, you know, and, and the Israelites smote the Canaanites, go thou and do likewise. It's very difficult to imagine how you begin to build out an application. But nevertheless, as I've said already, there is something in the nasty surprises that give us a hook into the real heart of preaching. And if we can get into the real heart of preaching, then we can learn something, I think, really helpful about what we are trying to do with the passage. So, I thought it might be helpful to reflect on five temptations you might like to avoid when exploring nasty surprises in the lectionary. A first, and I think really very significant one, is you should avoid assuming that everyone will react to the passage exactly as you react to the passage. I remember very vividly sitting next to somebody in a sermon when somebody was preaching about the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, I hate the sacrifice of Isaac, if I'm honest, cannot stand the story. Some of you will know why, because you will have read it in a book, but if you haven't, then let me tell you. My father is an ordained minister in the Church of England, and he developed a form of preaching um, in which he acted out the stories. It was um, very powerful. People really liked it. Um, and so did I. Except for when it came to the sacrifice of Isaac, because being unfortunate enough not to have any sons, he cast around, who could he choose? Oh, I know, I've got a daughter, she'll do. So as I was lying on the table with the kitchen knife poised above me, I said to myself, I do not like this story. I have never got over it. And the person who was preaching on the sacrifice to Isaac um, equally did not like it, though for other personal reasons. 
And I nodded away happily with their dislike of the story of the sacrifice to Isaac. And at the end of the, the service, the person next to me turned to me and said, I've always loved that story. Am I not allowed to like it anymore? Um, and I kind of, I felt my heart kind of constricting in a way because I was going, yeah, go on, preach it. Um, but actually what the sermon had done was alienated the person next to me who had loved the story. So therefore that assumption that how you react to a story or a passage is exactly how someone else will react to a passage becomes a very, very difficult thing. So we need to be very careful and imagine ourselves into a context in which we react to the story in a different kind of way. We at least lead, need to give people permission to react to it as they react to it, not just as we react to it. And the other issue which is really important to bear in mind is that, of course, we all hear things profoundly differently and we interpret stories profoundly differently. One of my favourite examples of this is actually um, about the prodigal son, which I've referred to already. Um, and as I've said already, I think it should be for us a more problematic text than we often regard it as. But someone called Mark Allen Powell, who is a hugely talented New Testament scholar and a great narrative critic, um, has done a beautiful illustration of how people hear texts differently. So he did a Bible study on the prodigal son in America. He's American. And he asked the people with whom he was doing the Bible study, why was the prodigal son hungry? You know, when you get to that point in the story, he's gone off, he's destitute, why was he hungry? The answer given by the American, um, Americans in the audience was what would probably sound very familiar to all of us here. He was hungry because he used up all his wealth. He went away, um, he was um, profligate, he was entirely his own fault. Um, he spent all his money. If he hadn't spent all his money, he wouldn't have been hungry. He happened the next month to be going to Russia. And when in Russia, he did exactly the same Bible study. And he said to the Russians, um, why was the prodigal son hungry? And the Russians did not mention the fact that he had been profligate. The Russians said he was hungry because there was a famine. Of course he was hungry. There was a famine. So therefore the reason why he was suffering was not his own fault. It was entirely to do with external circumstances. Fascinated by this, he then went on to a third context and asked the third context why the prodigal son was hungry. It was in Tanzania. So he asked the Tanzanians, why was the prodigal son hungry? They said, because no one in his new community took him in and cared for him. And what was absolutely fascinating was that they all read the same text. And they all, from their different cultural contexts, heard a different answer to the same question. And I think it's a profoundly fascinating example of what we probably all know but need to remind ourselves of regularly is everyone in our congregations comes with different experiences, different circumstances, often different cultures. So do not assume that what will be heard in one culture will automatically be heard in another culture. So that kind of attempt to be able to think expansively about a text is really quite important. So, my first tip. Do not assume that everyone feels the same as you do about a passage. Second, this will be a sadness to many of you. 
Do not assume that fancy exegetical footwork will get you out of the problem. <laughs> now, sometimes it will. Um, and of course, I will be a big fan of the fancy exegetical footwork. I like to think I'm good at it from time to time. But actually, there are occasions when you hear a little bit of fancy exegetical footwork and you think you're just trying to get yourself off the hook of a difficult passage. So sometimes it works. Let me give you an example of an occasion when I think it works. There are occasions when it works because the context requires it to work. And my favorite example of this is the cursing of the fig tree in Mark's gospel. Now, I know that preachers hate the cursing of the fig tree in Mark's gospel because they email me to tell me. Um, you know it's coming up in the lectionary because my inbox starts filling up with the people who really, really don't like it. And the reason why people don't like it is that it seems as though Jesus is being petty in the cursing of the fig tree. He's wandering away along on his way to Jerusalem, fancies a tasty snack, fig tree doesn't have tasty snack, he has a fixed of peak, he curses it, it dies, excellent result. Actually, if you read the context, you realize that actually the cursing of the fig tree is a very, very sophisticated explanation of the cleansing of the temple. Because in Mark's gospel, not in the other gospels, but in Mark's gospel, Jesus curses the fig tree, cleanses the temple, comes out and the fig tree is withered. It's, we call it an inclusio. It's wrapped around the cleansing of the temple. Now, the thing about fig trees, which you will probably know from the Old Testament, is fig trees was a symbol of the glorious future of Israel. When Israel was restored to God, each person would sit underneath their own fig tree in the shade of the day. The purpose of a fig tree is to produce figs. The other thing you probably know about fig trees is that fig trees have on them this year's fruit and next year's fruit being about to be ripe for this year's fruit. So you've always got two years' fruit on them. If a fig tree has no fruit on it, it is not going to have fruit this year, next year, or in fact any future years, unless you do something radical to it. So Jesus came along. He saw a fig tree which was not doing what fig trees should do, which was to provide fruit it being the great symbol of the glorious future of Israel with their God. He goes into the temple. Is the temple doing what the temple ought to be, being the big symbol of the glorious future of Israel with their God, particularly being the light to light in the nations? It is not. Jesus curses the fig tree. Jesus curses the temple. He comes out. The fig tree is withered. What might you therefore think about what will happen to the temple? Think that Mark's gospel is written somewhere around 70 AD, where people are either wondering what will be about to happen to it or what has just happened to it. People aren't quite sure whether it's before or after the fall of the temple. All of a sudden, the cursing of the fig tree makes a vast amount of sense. So there are some times that actually your bit of exegesis really, really helps. There are other times when it feels like a stretch. For me, one of the examples of the feeling like a stretch is that passage which, again, people really loathe in the Gospels, unless um, somebody hates their father and their mother and their brother and their sisters, um, you know, the passage. Now, I have heard so many sermons 
so many sermons telling me that actually in Hebrew, the word hate doesn't really mean hate. It means love a little less. And examples are given about how hate means love a little less. The best example is um, talking in Genesis where God loves Jacob and he hates Esau. And the exegetical explanations are given that um, he doesn't actually mean that God hates Esau. What it means is that God loves Esau less than Jacob. Now that may in fact be true. Um, it's very difficult to tell from the original word, but it could, in fact, be true. And people take that and they apply it into the gospel text and say, therefore, Jesus is not telling you to hate your father and your mother. The problem is that the same word that is used in Hebrew um, for um, Esau is also the word that is used regularly in the Psalms where the Psalmists say, you should love righteousness and hate wickedness. Now, according to the sermon illustration that is regularly heard, what that therefore means is you should love righteousness and love wickedness just a little bit less than righteousness. You'll see that it kind of gets you into a bit of a problem. And therefore, I think you need to be careful that with those kind of passages where you are trying to find an explanation for why it doesn't really say what it apparently appears to say, that you might need to stay a little bit longer with the hard answer rather than skip quickly to the easy answer. It's problematic if you go too quickly to the easy answer. So what do you do then? Of course, one solution, which is my third tip for what you ought to avoid, is that you avoid the difficult passages. You don't preach on the difficult passages. Um, it's an excellent solution. It gets you out of all sorts of problems. The problem is, as I'm sure you all know, the word of God is the word of God. There isn't a handy little hint that says in the margin, this bit is a little bit more of the word of God than that bit is a word of God. Um, and we all of us realistically have a doily Bible, don't we? where we've cut out the bits we like, um, or we've cut out the bits we don't like, and we've left the bits we do like. Um, however we do it, whether we've done it deliberately, whether we've done it subconsciously, we all read bits more. You only have to pick up anyone's Bible who reads their Bible regularly, and you can tell which bits they read, because they're the grey bits on the side, um, and the other bits are pristinely white. We all do it. The problem is that People in the congregation will notice that you're not preaching on the hard passages. And they will have heard the hard passages just as they have been read out in church. And I have had some absolutely fascinating conversations with lay people who feel able to talk to me as a fellow lay person about their problems with biblical passages. And what is really, really interesting is that I am regularly told by clergy, I couldn't tell my lay people this because it would, dot, 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 upset them, disturb their faith, um, it would be too difficult for them. I hear it regularly. And then I talk to the lay people who say, I'm just yearning to hear somebody talk about this hard issue and no one ever does. Um, I, my most moving moment was um, I gave a, um, a study day once on Isaiah. And I just talked my way through Isaiah. It was not 
glamorous biblical scholarship. It was kind of very straightforward. This is who Isaiah was. This is what he meant. We looked at some of the big passages. And at the end, a lady came up to me. She was in her 90s. And she had tears pouring down her cheeks. And she said, I've been coming to church the whole of my life. And no one's ever trusted me that I could maybe understand the Bible for myself. And it felt as though what she was saying was that people felt that she was fragile. She was, it was going to be too difficult for her. And so they had kept the hard stuff away. And actually, she wanted the hard stuff. Now, I know, as much as any of you here, that 12 minutes in a sermon is a really, really difficult thing to read a passage, posit the problem, scratch your head about how you solve the problem, recognize that actually the solving of the problem is not going to be very easy, um, explore actually what that solving or not solving of the problem might do to somebody's faith, and send them off into communion um, already and packaged up, um, ready to understand everything. It can't be done. But nevertheless, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. It doesn't mean that actually with some of these nasty surprises, we shouldn't actually have a really good go and trust the people in our congregation to have a go with us and see where it gets them. You'll see on the handout that um, I've included a quotation from Pope Francis um, from Joy of the Gospel, which is one of my favorite descriptions of a sermon. Pope Francis says this, a homily in a Eucharistic setting is much more than just teaching. It is the occasion when there is a dialogue between God and God's people. And I love that as a vision of what a homily, a sermon, is for. It is the moment when God enters and God's people enter and the preacher conducts the conversation. And it seems to me that actually that's our great calling in preaching. And sometimes... Sometimes it is the hardest passages that get you most easily into that conversation, not the easy ones, because it, are, it is the passages with which you've wrestled and wept and struggled and cursed and thrown the Bible out of the window and had to go and get it back. Um, it is those passages that actually somehow, sometimes, allow you to start that most profound conversation between God and God's people. And there is something, I think, really important in that. Having said that, let me say my tip number four to remind yourself. And I missed a really important knot out, I see, in my notes. This is a very important right knot in, if you're following the notes. Preaching can not bear the weight of the entirety of the proclamation, teaching, and application that needs to take place in the life and faith of a Christian. It's really, really important. Um, if for one moment we think that 12 minutes on a Sunday can proclaim all the good news that needs to be proclaimed, instruct people in all the Christian life and faith that they need to know, apply it to everything in their lives, then we are, of course, going to set ourselves up for one massive failure. Um, what the sermon does is sum up the proclamation that has happened throughout the whole of the week. 
What it does is remind people of the instruction that is happening in the life of their, and, and faith as they go about their everyday discipleship. It reminds them of what they have already learned about application. You cannot imagine you can do it all in 12 minutes. Even if you expand it to a most un-Anglican 30 minutes, it still can't be done. Um, actually, the sermon is not the place where you can bear the full weight of all of that. So actually, we need to be reflecting on where proclamation is happening, where instruction is happening, where application is happening, and pull them together in our sermons. Um, and that's why I added in um, one of my favorite quotes about sermons from George Burns. The secret of a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good end, then having the two as close together as possible. Um, those of us who have sat through some very, very long sermons in our life would say a hearty hear, hear to that. Um, actually, the sermon is not trying to bear an unbearable weight. And um, what it's trying to do is sum up what we have already experienced. And there is, I think, something really important in that. And also, just back to Pope Francis for one moment, remember particularly the homily in the Eucharistic setting is actually not doing all the heavy lifting. The Eucharist does the heavy lifting. The sermon simply um, um, supports the heavy lifting that the Eucharist is already doing. And it's worth reminding ourselves of that as well. My final, final tip of things to avoid. Sometimes in you know, the dim reaches of the night when the sermon isn't coming and you are utterly despairing and you have no idea what it is that you're going to do, it is easy to imagine that actually it is your words and your words alone that will transform people. And if you fail tomorrow morning in your transformation, it will be your fault entirely. And the salvation of the parish um, and, its, and the lack of its efficacy will weigh entirely on your shoulders. You do know that's not right, don't you? But it's easy to forget it when you are writing your sermon. Let us remember that actually our words act only are there to open the door onto the presence of the living God and then for us to get out of the way as quickly as we can so that people can in fact encounter the living God. And if this week your words happen not quite to do that, it really isn't disastrous. The living God is still the living God. Jesus is still risen from the dead. The Holy Spirit is still present in our lives. Um, it isn't all about you. It's not all resting on your shoulders. So there are my top five tips for what to think about when you're wrestling with your nasty surprises. Let me just for a few moments tell you a whole of, load of things that you already know, like I haven't been already, but let's um, do, some, do a few more. Because one of the things that I think is really important about nasty surprises of the Bible is it reminds us about how we treat the Bible. The trouble and the real curse of an easy passage, you know the one you know you, you, know, you can go, oh, I can do it without reading. I know that one off the back of my hand. The trouble with those is that it seduces you into thinking that you can pick a passage up out of the Bible plonk it down in the 21st century, and hey presto, it speaks profoundly into people's lives. Now sometimes it does. Um, and this is where I have to kind of rein myself in a little bit as a biblical scholar. 
Um, because biblical scholars know, and you will all have been told at some time in your life by a biblical scholar, that what you must never, never, never do is take a passage out of its context and put it down entirely out of its context in a completely different context. Unfortunately, Jesus had never had that conversation with biblical scholars. So consequently, did it all the time. So as soon as I say what you must never do is take a passage out of context, I can hear in my ear um, that kind of just little refrain, yeah, but Jesus did it. So sometimes, of course, it is right and proper to do that. Because far be it from me to say Jesus used his Bible badly. Um, that would be most in, in, inappropriate. So sometimes it is right. But sometimes it really isn't right. And let me just give you a little bit of an illustration about where we need to be careful. There is a verse much beloved of many, many Christians. There's the trouble of doing this. It's not raining on everyone's parade. But there's a verse um, beloved of many Christians, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Lovely passage, isn't it? Um, it gives you that sense of confidence and assurance. God is going to act well for his people. The problem is, if you read Jeremiah 29 in its context, Jeremiah is saying to the people of God, your city is going to be destroyed. The Babylonians are going to come and blow you off the face of the earth. You're going into exile for 60 years. But... I know the plans I have for you, and they're cheery on the other side of the 60 years. Now, I've never actually heard a sermon that goes, first 60 years, not looking so good. After that, much cheerier. And of course, the reason why that Jeremiah verse is so powerful is that it holds the hope. And the whole point about hope is it's that pegs hope into the future, and you put your vision there, and you hold on. But actually, if you tell people that the future is coming too soon, that actually it will break in and your suffering will disappear tomorrow, then actually we're not really being very faithful to what the message was originally there in, in the text. So there is something, I think, about do use the passages where it is really powerful and really helpful, but at the same time, we need to be cautious about overfixing on passages that actually didn't really originally mean that in their original context. And for me, probably one of the best models for thinking about reading texts is my utmost favorite, Jacob wrestling with the angel in Genesis. Because the really important thing about that text is Jacob wrestles all night. And all of us who've tried to preach on a nasty surprise in the lecture, we go, yeah, we've been there. We know what that feels like. But if you remember the passage, Jacob goes off in the morning incidentally having not made much of an impact on the angel you'll remember he wanted to know his name no success there and he limped off in the morning he himself was damaged by the experience damaged changed transformed the real wrestling actually will make you into a different person and it is that wrestling that is transformational and ultimately, when you're doing this kind of work, you cannot but be a different person at the end of it. And if we take ourselves, our task very seriously, then it is that wrestling which is the transformational element. So, a few conclusions. Um, 
Do work hard at understanding the text for yourself. Exegesis is really, really important. But don't always feel the need to show your workings. You know it already, but it's always worth reminding you. I can't remember who said this, um, and I can't find the quote, but I do remember it um, perfectly, so I put it down as anonymous. If you know who said it, let me know. Exegesis in sermon preparation is like wearing underwear. We all need to do it, but we don't need to show everyone. <laughs> it is very much worth reminding yourself of that um, because, again, I do it. You know, you've done a really naughty bit of exegesis and you're really pleased with yourself and you slip it into the sermon because it was so good and everyone's face is sitting there going, what is she talking about? It is just worth reminding yourself that exegesis is for the study. Um, it is not necessarily for the sermon. It can be, but it's not necessarily for the sermon. The next thing is the journey that you go on when you do sermon preparation. For me, I think one of the really striking things about sermon preparation, it is very easy to slip into the trap of thinking that what you're doing is preparing for this sermon. So here I am in this week doing my sermon preparation, and once I've done it, I will preach it like this. There's a kind of a reservoir. You pour into the reservoir, you scoop out what you put into the reservoir, and you preach the sermon. That's why it hurts not to be able to preach on your nice bit of exegesis, because you put all the work in, you want everyone to know you've done it, so off you go in your sermon. Actually, I think sermon preparation is very much more like a reservoir than it is like a cup. Um, when you start, of course you put in and you take out exactly what you've put in because that's all there is, we've all been there. But as you go through the years, what you discover is you put more and more and more in the reservoir and you teaspoon it out into your sermon. And lo and behold, when you return, there's a whole load of really interesting stuff in that reservoir which you may never tell anyone. But it is there. And like Jacob and the angel, you are transformed as a result of it. Your sermon preparation is the reservoir which will fill actually not just the sermon you preach. Actually, maybe we should just call it preparation rather than sermon preparation because it is the preparation for the life that you will live. It is the preparation for the conversations that you will have. It is the preparation for the engagements that you will have in really irritating meetings. Um, it's all there, the reservoir. And therefore, your preparation is what fits you for the life that you lead. And what you're trying to illustrate to the people listening to you is that they might want their own reservoir. They want to might find their own way of filling a reservoir. And how might they do that in the way in which they live their lives? And that's why I've got down as my third conclusion. You do feel free to admit defeat. I have on more than one occasion where I have simply had to say this passage will not be wrestled into submission at all. Um, there is nothing that I can do to think of anything of any helpfulness to say about this passage. The hymn it is. Um, it's perfectly okay to do that. But what we need to be very careful about is therefore not reading the passage ourselves. Um, we can, after our wrestling, admit defeat. 
But I think, and there are all sorts of stories I could tell you, but I'm running out of time, so I can't, that actually it is those nasty surprises, the really difficult passages, that are the grit in the spiritual oyster. You know, the thing that bugs you years and years and years. Um, and eventually, um, it grows into something. It doesn't mean that you've necessarily understood the passage any better. It doesn't mean that you necessarily like it any better. But the grit has worked at you over years. And suddenly, looking back, you discover that there is, in fact, a pearl. Um, and it was the working which is the really important thing. I'd just like to end with a point that I've made already, but it's one about which I am very passionate, and I've nicked it off Pope Francis, but you know that, and that's okay. The conversation partners in a sermon are God and God's people, not God and the preacher, not the preacher and God's people, but God and God's people. The text, the world's events, the preacher, um, all sorts of other things, they can contribute or suffocate, but let's hope contribute to the conversation that takes place between God and God's people. Our great challenge, our great vision, our great hope is that we can be people who enable the very best of conversation between God and God's people. And I firmly believe that it is the nasty surprises in the lectionary that actually can get you into the very best of that kind of conversation. Now, I'm going to try and look at you while I talk. Let me see if I can get the microphone. I don't, don't like turning my back on you. So. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, I forget who said this, um, but somebody very famous said, if you want me to talk for two hours, I can do it straight away. Um, if you want me to talk for five minutes, I'll need a couple of days preparation. Um, I feel exactly the same. Ask me to do a two-hour lecture, I'm easy. I can just, because you can, um, you can work out what you're going to say as you're saying it, and nobody really minds because, well, <laughs> they don't say they mind anyway, um, because um, you've got lots of time to work it out. So there is something about uh, a more expansive um, time allows you um, to, it's, it's a much more informal, much more conversive kind of an, an occasion, whereas five minutes requires absolute distillation of thought. Um, every word matters, every pla the placement of every word matters. So there is, I think, something very, kind of very powerful about noticing precisely what you're trying to achieve in the time available. I do would just love to throw in, you haven't asked the question, but let me throw it in because I think it's very interesting. Um, I think. Um, we are decreasingly in a world that is used to somebody standing and talking at them for a long period of time. Um, and therefore, there is a need for us to begin to explore different modes of um, how we do that level of communication. Um, it, I don't quite buy that people have no concentration span anymore, but actually there is an element in which we do need to kind of distill things down. And I just leave you with the thought that um, the Greek word um, from which we get our word homily is the word homileo, which means conversation. And I'm fascinated about what's happened that moves us from a conversation to a homily. Oh, oh now that is a big, big question, isn't it? Um, yes, I can, yes. Um, um, so... Um, the gentleman at the top was um, reflecting on online presence um, and um, 
whether, in fact, we should engage with the nasty surprises, you know, the really difficult, challenging stuff um, in an online forum, or whether you should go offline for that conversation. And I'm very tempted to say yes and no, um, <laughs> or no and yes. Um, on the one hand, um, as we all know, the best kind of debate, very sadly, does not appear to be able to be had on internet forums. Um, although, having said that, um, I run a Facebook group um, called Explorations in Theology and Spirituality, I think it's called, Explorations in something or other, in which we have very, very clear rules about method of engagement. Um, and we have moderators who, if you break the rules, um, will remove your post. Um, and we're very clear up front about it. And interestingly, we have almost no trouble at all about talking about really difficult um, issues. I've only ever, it's been going two years or so, and I've only ever taken four or five posts down. So, it's, it's, so it can be done, but we all know that it is really difficult to do. And it's done in a very tightly controlled environment. Having said that, um, the internet is the place where you can learn all sorts of bonkers stuff about the nasty surprises in the lectionary. And having a measured, thoughtful, reflective, wrestled voice in, the, in amongst them seems to be really very important. So that's why I want to say yes and no. Um, I think we need to be cautious about how we do it, but actually if we don't do it at all, it has the same effect of not preaching on it as well in that. We kind of leave them to the people that we would rather not leave those difficult passages to. Uh, great, great question. Um, and do you want me to repeat it again? Um, so the, the, the question, um, which was very, very nicely put, is um, we've heard about fake news. What do you do about fake exegesis? Um, and, and again, I'm torn, you can see that I'm torn, because um, I do not want to say you cannot interpret the Bible like this. Everything in my training, everything in my fiber of my being says um, I do not want to be the person that says you must not interpret it like this. Um, at the same time, um, there are a whole load of things that go around, and I have heard many of them, um, that make me twit. If you sit near me, you'll hear me see me do this. Um, because um, it's simply, so some of them, I was going to say simply not true, highly debatable, verging on the not true. Um, and, and, and then when you, the, the real challenge, I think, of a sermon uh, is that it can't be challenged. Um, and I'm conscious of that um, when I am trying to deal with some very difficult things, um, is that actually sometimes things need challenging. But how do you do that in um, a helpful and supportive way is a very, very difficult thing indeed. I've been to some churches um, which have a practice what I, of whom, which I approve wholeheartedly, which is that after the main service, they have the opportunity, so if you're a visiting preacher, they say, will you stay and have a conversation with the congregation afterwards? Um, and I think that's a fabulous model, because it does allow then members of the congregation to go, oh, I didn't buy that, and then you can have a conversation about it. Uh, I think there is something in that, um, but I'd still kind of, I would just be a little bit twitchy about um, saying, you're not allowed to say that, although I'd love to sometimes. <laughs> That's all for this special Church Times podcast extra. 
you can buy a USB stick featuring all 11 talks at festivalofpreaching.himsam.co.uk. Do check out our introductory subscriber offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was brought to you by Sought After Sounds. The regular Church Times podcast will be back on Friday. Do join us then. Thank you.